Hello, presenting Pitilus Pontiff's podcast with uh, episode number 137. I'm uh, Pat, and I'm joined this week with uh, Patrick Wynn of PalesOfAdventure.com and Pim Casali of PoolStuffInc.com. And speaking of PoolStuffInc.com, we'd like to thank them for sponsoring this popular podcast with free shipping on orders and pre-orders of $100 or more and a sweet 25% buy list bonus. CoolStuffInc.com is the store for all of your Magic the Gathering needs. Happy April Fools, everybody, and welcome to uh, cartel number 137. How are you guys doing this week? I figured I'd take the uh, the mic um, filter off for those lovely P sounds. That was unexpected. Yeah. Also unbearable. <laughs> well, you know what else is unbearable? Um, watching someone win a quarter of a million dollars and not being able to play in that. So, big F, but I'm happy a customer of mine won. So, can't complain. I'm, I am so confused. I like what you just said there literally doesn't make any sense. You hate playing Magic, but yes. you're mad that you couldn't compete. But you're happy that a person that buys cards from you won because presumably they're going to buy cards from you with that money. All three of those things. Yes. Those are there was four things, but you know who's counting. That gets That's Missouri little, education, Jim. Yeah, I was gonna say is that Missouri math is a little off. Yeah, I mean people think that bagels should be sliced in two different ways, but if we slice them at least twenty different ways, it's a culinary delight. This is not good. Whatever. It How is are you doing, saying. Ed? I mean, uh, all the things you're saying so un- unacceptable, especially <laughs> the bagel thing. That's just monstrous. It's a travesty. I forgot to um, buy the Oreos to do our little joke. Yeah, Sorry. we'll do that sometime. I don't think Ed saw it. Uh, Ed was at um, Grand Prix Montreal this weekend. Calgary. Calgary. It was a Canadian one. How was the weekend? Uh, it was a fairly small event. Uh, in case people don't actually know where Calgary is, which... I actually had a vague idea. I didn't actually know until I looked at a map. Calgary is basically Montana extra. So it is due north of Montana. It is very, very far west. And it's basically inaccessible except by flying. Uh, Even though uh, it is not terribly far from Vancouver and Seattle, it is basically impossible to drive because you have to drive up and through the Rockies to get there. Uh, the turnout was quite underwhelming, uh, which is fine. I mean, I think that was to be expected. Um, but nothing too terribly exciting. I was trying to keep tabs on the uh, Mythic Invitational over the weekend as much as I could. And uh, also trying to follow up uh, yesterday with the War of the Spark spoilers. Um, trying Trying to watch it was a little difficult because my internet wasn't the best. Uh, but trying to watch as much of that as I could. So that was the weekend. It was fairly, uh, it was fairly straightforward. It was just not a large GP, probably due to the location. Um, the last time they actually had a GP Calgary was six years ago, from what I was told. And I... I, I, I for what it was, it was a fine. It was a fine weekend. Nothing exciting. Nothing out of the ordinary. Just another another GP. Yeah, there's two things that are certain in life: death and taxes. And there's two things on a cartel episode that are certain in life: bad audio from Ed or dishes in the background. So it's uh, it's good to be reunited with the dishes. Why why would it be dishes in the background and not like? Awful Jeremy puns because I'm pretty sure those are almost exclusively on our podcast. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, we had Infinite War of the Spark spoilers. It, the the new planeswalkers are basically enchantments with bonuses, or do you think that they're planeswalkers? I was think... was that a was that a statement or a question? Because you said question. they're basic. They're basically this, but do you think they're this? Yes, because some people say that they're just enchantments that you can basically attack, 
which technically is the design for Planeswalkers, but these have static abilities, not just activated abilities. So, Ed, how do you feel about some of the ones we've seen so far? Uh, I am fairly underwhelmed uh, by a lot of them. I think they have the appropriate uh, design point where it's they're basically super enchantments, as it were. Uh, they have an effect immediately when they come down, which I say a lot of enchantments slack. Um, they most of them do affect the board right away uh, in terms of being able to make a creature of some kind or have some way to protect itself, um, or some sort of interaction with uh, the board. Um, I think like the Obnixilus Planeswalker destroys something, for example. Um, but beyond that, I think they're without any sort of easy way to uh, give Planeswalkers more counters. Yes, I know Proliferate is in the set. Um, it doesn't seem to be on the log card so far. Obviously, we haven't seen a, lo a log card spoiled yet. But uh, the ones we've seen when you just have a creature that it's just a vanilla creature with Proliferate on top. Um, it seems like there's a bit of uh, conflict in design there. Um, you obviously want a lot of Planeswalkers, but you need to be able to support them in some way with proliferate creatures to um, to get the most out of them. And then beyond that, because most of them don't have ways to generate loyalty themselves, you're kind of left with just an enchantment once you, you go minus minus on a lot of these Planeswalkers. Um, obviously, it'll... It's yet to be seen how this will play out because I do foresee a lot of uh, board stalls with just multiple planeswalkers on each side, and I'm not sure if they're actually powerful enough or they can continue to affect the board in such a way where people care about them uh, like like we do about planeswalkers right now versus, oh, I'll just leave it there as an enchantment type thing, which is kind of what I'm leaning towards on them. And what are your initial thoughts for EDH and Standard when it comes to war? Um, well, we know that it's good for absolutely nothing, so we'll get that out of the way. But I think that a lot of these Planeswalkers are quite good, even though they don't look nearly as good as people want them to be. Um, for example, uh, I know I'm a little bit biased because of the colors that I play, but I think that the Uncommon Hiora one is probably one of the best ones that they've spoiled so far. Um, and I think that this kind of design, I think, is much better in the future to put on um, powerful cards because everyone can interact with Planeswalkers, right? Like, you can have creatures in every color and you can attack them, but, like, players playing red or black or red and black can't interact at all with enchantments. And having powerful enchantments is definitely more of a downside than having powerful static abilities on planeswalkers such that they act like enchantments uh so i i think that like that style is pretty good uh i'm trying to look up the card that uh whoops that's not how you spell that uh so the the cure is a lot like uh elemental bond which is a card that's a uncommon from magic origins that's like two dollars uh, there's probably going to be more of this open than Magic Origins, and you can obviously attack her, and she doesn't go into as many decks because she's two colors, but I wouldn't be surprised because Planeswalkers tend to command a premium over what they normally would have if they weren't, like, a specific character because people have, you know, characters that they, they like more than others. I wouldn't be surprised if this was, like, a $5 foil for no reason or even just, like, a two or three dollar uncommon in this set that just never gets played in the standard. Like, there's there's a lot of stuff going on here that I'm interested to see how people how how it shakes up. Like, there's there I don't know. There's just a lot of there's just a lot to digest right now. Like, all of the planeswalkers having static abilities is not something that we've ever seen before, and whether or not it plays the same way as an enchantment remains to be seen. Obviously, these will be much better against control decks that don't have the ability to pressure them as easily. So you have things like 
the Zomit Planeswalker, which would be quite good against a control deck that doesn't have an ability to pressure it because it just gives all your guys haste. Um, similarly, you know, the Vraska makes guys get a lot bigger if you can't interact with her. There's, there's, I think there's a lot to like at the uncommon level, which is more than I was actually expecting because some of them are like very okay, but some of them have pretty good abilities that I would be surprised don't see, sta see standard play. Uh, what I will say though that I think is a lot of people are probably under are underrating the Liliana. Um, I think that's the probably the best card in the set spoiled so far in like all formats. Clearly, uh, well, not clearly, but like I think that Bolas is Citadel, which is the artifact that lets you play the top card of your library for its for its mana cost and life. It's probably the most busted in like vintage and stuff where you can play it on turn one, but not so much in standard where like you're unlikely to have an excessive amount of life to play with and a bunch of cheap cards to cast it. Uh, I think that Liliana looks to me a lot like uh, Elspeth's Sun's Champion. It's a it's a planeswalker that ticks up in loyalty very quickly to its ultimate. It makes creatures that block and protect it very easily. Uh, it has the ability to deal with larger creatures immediately when it comes down. And it has the ability to draw a bunch of cards. Now, what a lot of people don't notice, I think, on this card is that it's just whenever a creature you control dies, you draw a card, which is significantly different than whenever a non-token non creature you control dies, which is the template of a lot of other cards like this. Um, Groom Horror Specs and... Um, what's that 6-6 six, six demon that has Death Touch? That draws a card when a guy dies. Anyone remember the name of that thing? I see it in Commander all the time, but I forget what it's called. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I mean, I can like see what it's what it looks like, like um, it's a Harvester of Souls. Yeah, uh, Harvester of Souls, Midnight Reaper. All of these cards say non-token creature, which is significantly worse than just whenever a creature you control dies, draw a card. Um, and, you know, the Liliana is a lot like Dark Prophecy, which is a card that's from M14 that says whenever you draw, whenever creature you control dies, lose a life and draw a card. You could just play this Liliana as, like, a, a combo engine to, like, draw a ton of cards, sacrifice a bunch of creatures. Uh, the fact that it, it doesn't care if they're tokens is kind of a big deal. It means that your, your blockers that you create with Liliana will draw you extra cards, which will presumably draw you more removal spells to protect her. And her, her ultimate kind of ends the game and just leaves your opponent with like three or four permanents probably. So I think that this is the kind of card that might not be, out of the gates, it might not be the most um, sought after card because I think that, I don't know what it is about Liliana's, but people just like read them and don't think that they're quite as good as they are. Like I know a lot of people were not so high on um, Liliana the Last Hope and that card's like $50 now. Yep. So And it's going to go higher with new spoilers today. I I don't know if it's like necessarily going to drive it higher, but that card is quite good, and so is Liliana with the Veil. So if you're encouraged to play more of them, I don't see, like, I think they'll just move from sideboards to main decks, but I don't think people will necessarily need more copies of them. It's really good in Legacy, in Grixis. So. Okay. You can interact with your opponent in their draw step, and Liliana the Last Hope is like, what all the Grixis decks are playing right now. Yeah, I mean, that card's very good. It doesn't surprise me. And yeah. uh, the card that you're alluding to is Liliana's Triumph, which is a Diabolic Edict that gets around Ley Lines and also makes your opponent discard a card if you have a Liliana in play. Yep. So it's it's Diabolic with diabolic Edict with a lot of upside. Um, so I, I, I can see that in a lot of formats that need that kind of effect um probably modern and i assume since you said mentioned it legacy but i feel like this set so far has a lot of cards that people are like maybe not as as high on as they should be and maybe there's some still some cards that people i think there's still cards that people like are overvaluing like i think that the teferi is actual garbage i don't think there's the ever metal one yeah the T teferi time raveler like doesn't do anything when you play it doesn't really pressure your opponent in a meaningful way. Like, yeah, it, it locks your opponent out of stuff, but like, is this meaningfully different than like a defense grid? Probably not. 
Like no, they do mostly the same thing. But it's once again very good in legacy, and people are definitely gonna play this in vintage. And that's a very small the subset. What? The, the three minute one. Yeah. Interesting. I, I don't yeah. I mean, I guess you can stop like forcefuls and dazes and stuff, but I feel like if you have it, like if you're playing a three mana planeswalker, it should probably win you the game very shortly. And this thing doesn't do that. This is something miracles once in Legacy. It's definitely going to be tested. Um, oh yeah. And I know people are going to test this in Vintage. I don't know if it's as good in Vintage as it is in Legacy, but it's pretty good in Legacy, depending on the meta game. Sure. So. I mean, that's that that could be the case, but like right now they're pre-ordering for ten dollars on cool stuff. And right. that's not the kind. This is not the kind of card that's going to get a ton of play in standard, which is what would need to command that kind of a price tag. Right. But speaking of undervalued walkers and just the set in general, doubling season finally is over forty dollars. Up until last month, you could find them for thirty-five pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, the card has finally gone up, and a lot of people are getting rewarded. Mycosynth Lattice is another one that a lot of people picked up after the reprint. This card was $100 on TCG this morning because the internet was basically gone. The lowest copy of non-foil was $100. Um, obviously, expect this to go back down as cards come out of players' binders and overseas. But it's just something to note if you've had these in your trade binder. I mean, that, that seems like an excessive amount. Um, yeah. I know that also a lot of people have been talking about. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't. Is it Liliana Untouched by Death? I believe is the name of the card. So I was going to get into that. Um, this is a card that I believe I called three months ago for casual play when it was like $2 TCG low. Um, this is just a lucky hit. This is already a casual favorite in Zombie EDH, and if it sees actual playing standard rather than just being ten dollars now, it could be easily be twenty bucks. Yeah, because... so I dislike what happened here because um, this card's not very good, and the price dictated that previously because nobody was going out saying, "Hey, you should buy a bunch of copies of this." Right, and one person in particular did. And whether or not it was a joke, I don't know. But I don't I don't recommend people going out and like just taking people's words and saying, oh, oh yeah, this person says it's the you know it's the best. I have to buy all the copies of it. Like this card's not very good. And yo, even though it has gone up in price at this point, I don't know that anyone's actually paying the new price point for it. Like it looks like it's ten dollars now, and if you bought them at five, you probably feel good. But honestly, I'm not really sure that there's any market for them at 10, especially if they don't see play in the first couple of weeks of standard. I, I don't know where this where this card finds a home. And I think that a lot of people are going to just end up with copies of these that they're going to end up trying to sell for even less than what they paid for them. And in a month, it could be like $3 instead of the $5 it was in the morning that the uh, spoilers started. So I don't like to... to tell people to go out and buy cards specifically because, oh, it says zombie on it, and there are cards in this set that say zombie on them. They must be good together. Like, there has to be more to what you're trying to do than just, you know, zombies, this says zombie, this says zombie, they must be good. Because that's clearly not the case. Like, cards like, um, what's the name of the zombie? Death Baron. Death Baron's in the standard. Nobody plays zombies. They're not good. They're, they're not going to be good after this, probably. Death Baron could before. spike. Yeah, Just I know. But that is not being themed. I, 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 don't, I, I don't disagree with you, but I'm not saying, I'm saying that if you're a car, if you're a player that's buying cards specifically to play with them, don't go out and, and just buy things because they have some loose, like, correlations to each other. Like, you have to take into consideration what kind of deck this would go in. What would make this card good? And I don't think there's any number of zombies that make Liliana untouched by death good. Like, I don't think the issue is the how many zombies you can play because the zombies just aren't very good. Uh, and and even if they were good, like, I don't even know that, like, any of its abilities are particularly good with the zombies that you could have. Like, it's just, the, it's just like, this is, like, kind of like a, a Jace living guild pact kind of card where it's like it just isn't good no matter what kind of 
situation you're put in. Like the numbers just don't make very much sense. And it really, it, it annoys me when people say like, oh, MTG Finance causes, causes all these buyouts and you know people buy out infinite copies of cards and then they get uh, really expensive. But players are also a large part of the problem. Doing things like buying out, buying large copies of mythic rares, especially that are unproven is asking for a bad time. Yeah, that's great analysis. Um, I don't really have anything to add to that, which may be a first on this podcast. Ed? Um, I think Jeremy kind of hit on the nose. We're currently at the stage where we kind of brought it up last week that cards are definitely on the up and up. People are finding basically any opportunity they can to make a buck, it feels like. We have all kinds of cards going up um, now that spoilers are starting to slowly come out with the new set. I expect that we'll still see more spikes um, probably this week. We'll probably see one or two more cards that change how the interactions work that will get expensive. Uh, last week we saw a lot of casual cards go up. Um, and I think, I imagine in a week or two, we'll start looking at modern and uh, legacy staples go up. I keep bringing this up because I see a lot of people who are who are looking to capitalize on this opportunity because now that prices are starting to close in, they can now take apart the EDH deck, take apart the modern deck or whatever, and start trading towards the staples that have previously been out of reach for them. But because stores are trying to restock on uh, Absent Angel of Hope, for example, now the, because they sold through so quickly when the price went up, now they don't have any stock, they're forced to pay a higher number than they would have previously. And now if, you, you know, if you're savvy about it, you want to trade it in, take a trade bonus, Getting that hundred dollar scalding tarn, or you know, two hundred fifty dollar tundra, whatever, becomes much more attainable. Um, I think, um, in theory, you could capitalize on uh, Liliana Untouched by Death. I think that is kind of an odd one. Um, I think the fact that it always has casual demand puts a relatively high floor on how cheap this card will be. I think even if it is unproven in standard and it doesn't turn out to actually do anything, now that we have this kind of a, a bit of price memory in place, I don't want, think we'll ever see it at $5 again. I just think this card is just going to be probably, you know, six, seven, eight dollars just going forward. Anything you want to say about that, Jim? Nope. No, right. no, I agree. I think that that's all true. But I just like want to try to emphasize that I don't think that this was like necessarily a thing that was going to happen as quickly as it did. And I think that if you've missed the boat at this point, don't don't buy them. Like you're going to be the the greater fool. Yeah, I don't feel like I was advocating to buy them. I was just saying what could happen. So, Jim. What is our credit winner of the week? Uh, our credit winner of this week is David McCoon. And he asks uh, a question that I am sure the both of you have had a lot of experience with, which is, have you had any experience in approaching a store and offering to buy out their inventory? Uh, I've been buying from a store online that, as far as I can tell, doesn't seem to be keeping up with magic sales. It has old pricing, no new sets updated, etc. And I'm wondering about the feasibility of buying out their inventory since they don't seem to be interested in doing much with it. Uh, so I don't have any experience with this because I don't like to buy large amounts of things that I'm not planning to play. Uh, so I'm going to just defer the question to the two of you. Um, I... There's obviously a very, very large scale in this. There's probably a lot of people that can afford to buy what I seem to be getting from this question. It seems like almost a large collection rather than actual store inventory. Um, 
be. Obviously, details here. We don't know what this looks like, how big this collection is. There's a lot of there's a lot of, a lot of fine tuning, a lot of work that goes in. Um, obviously, if they're actually looking to sell, um, that's something you would have to take up with them. Um, they might not necessarily care. They might not necessarily care that it's updated. They might only have one person that does this. Uh, that doesn't that isn't able to uh, list cards, uh, sell cards, price cards, and then pack orders as well. Uh, so again, they might not care. It might be a there's a lot of variables. It might be a uh, resale slash pawn shop type place. I've definitely seen those before uh, because those types of places they know to they know magic cards are worth money. They know Pokemon cards are worth money. They probably pay their usual you know, 10, 25%, 30% of value, and they just sell them as they buy them. And because their margins are fixed, they don't actually care. Um, again, I don't know the details. It's hard to say what this looks like. Um, I would say it's a free role to approach them. Say, hey, I buy cards from you all the time. You can look at, if it's on TG, for example, you can look at their entire store inventory, uh, ask if they can send you a CSV file uh, and make an offer. Um, the worst they do is say no. Um, it's definitely hit or miss. Obviously, on the larger end of this, you have stores that are closing, um, and you you can walk in and make an offer on the entire contents of store inventory. This is definitely one of those your mileage may vary. There's just, again, I don't know your situation. I don't know what your bankroll looks like, how much you're able to buy and sell cards for yourself. If you're just a one-man operation with a TCG player store, um how much you can afford to invest in this collection what the what the actual collection looks like are they just selling a lot of you know 10 cent commons or whatever um i would again probably approach them say hey i buy cards from you i would be interested in buying everything could i get a csv or some a better idea of what the inventory looks like and then make an offer from there jim What? You don't want to answer this, or do you want me to? Were you not listening at the beginning when I read the question? I was. Where... I had to sneeze there. <laughs> if you were watching the video live, uh, for our listeners. All right, one sec. So, there's a couple things that I agree with Ed on, and a couple things I don't agree with Ed on. Um, I'm pretty sure David reached out to the Brainstorm Brewery Discord about this. I think we had a conversation about this in Quiet Speculation as well. Um, this isn't a plug for either of them. I just feel like yeah, someone asked the same question to me. As Ed knows, buying out stores or even making the offer is a lot. Because not only do you have to deal with someone who isn't keeping track of prices... The other thing that you have to deal with is the shop owner's personality themselves. So if they have everything at old prices and you haven't bought all the cards that are completely mispriced at old prices to make free money on, then they're going to be out of all the stuff that you would actually make money on. And the only thing you're going to be able to haggle with is Phyrexian Altar at like... 30 or 40 if he's a couple of months behind or odyssey and tombs for 25 dollars, which are considered old prices right like let's say that the shop owner buys a card a year ago he puts it at that price and he doesn't touch it that means one year later every single customer who's come into his shop has bought everything that's gone up since then and only the garbage stuff is left you then have to convince this shop owner that he's going to take a massive loss. And at that point, he's either going to believe you and take a very small amount of money out of desperation, or he's going to think that you're attempting to screw him. Because what he sees as, say, $10,000 worth of inventory may actually only buy us for $1,500 after a year of reprints. Can we both agree on that, Ed? I think so. Again, it, like, it really varies. I definitely walked into some of these... Uh, one-man operation mom-pop type shops where the extent to which they actually deal with magic is they will 
they will buy seal project as it comes in and as a and our card will pay you three dollars for example um and they're not keen on keeping up on prices again their margin is fixed so i i, I definitely see where jeremy is coming from with this okay so that was step one step two is if it's a bigger shop you need to get a way to transport all those cards from point A back to your house. You then have to have a way to catalog everything because when you're buying out shops, a lot of times you just have boxes and boxes of unsorted stuff. And that's generally where most people make a ton of money because a lot of shop owners will throw buys in like a box and forget about it. I know vendors have bought boxes from other vendors and like other vendors have forgotten that they had a stack of duels in that box. But uh, it even happens with the quote-unquote professionals all the time. Um, but I, for example, uh, I bought out a shop 30 minutes from one of my places, and it was 400,000, 500,000 commons. You have to look at how much you're paying and then realize how much you have to either dedicate your own time and storage, which we all know Ed is very, very crazy about, um, as well as ways to actually move these cards. Because I had to move four or 500,000 commons that I was not going to be able to sell locally. You know, like 72 copies of Dragon's Maze commons. I know there was a thousand of each Gilgate, stuff like that. So then I start looking at stuff like the blueprint which uh, Jim has talked about before, for example. And I have to start calculating my time. If I'm selling guild gates at five cents each, how long does it take for me to package all this stuff up, pick them out of the bulk, etc.? So when it comes to shop buys, it depends on how big it is, how many cards it is. The more cards you buy, the higher the chance is that you're going to spike some sort of find, but you also have to have enough space and time or be able to value your money correctly. If it's a shop that doesn't really carry commons and uncommons, which is what I see a lot of with older shops that would only buy and sell like high singles, put them on their shelf, like at a comic book shop that doesn't have room for anything besides comic books. They have like two or three small cases of dusty old cards. Those are, if they agree to sell them, on average be more profitable short term or for people that are doing this casually, then it will be for a seasoned MTG finance veteran to see stuff like uh, $2 commons, like uh, Sky Shroud Claim, which I feel like people know now thanks to Doug, but you know, a stack of Sky Shroud Claims a couple years ago, a lot of people wouldn't have known that. So you need to leverage your expertise with how much um, time and resources it's going to take. And those are just walk in to like some shop that's been in the air for two to three years or whatever and make an offer. A completely different level of this is when a successful shop goes under and they have a solid five figures of cards. And this happens a lot on social media where they'll sell their business and all that. And if you're a casual listener, you can lose a ton of money buying these type of collections. Or for the people that you see post on Facebook all the time to make it more relatable for Jim, there's people every week that say, I have a $60,000 collection. I want $40,000 for it. And a lot of our listeners may look at that and get big stars in their eyes. And they'll say, wow, I can get $20,000 free dollars. Well, the people selling these on Facebook every week are a little better at finance than you are. Um, I, there's people like um, the coach, which I won't say his real name on this cast, but he's a I think Ed knows who we're talking about. Uh, he bought a collection at Eternal Weekend for high six figures. And he did not pay, for example, $40,000 per 60,000 of cards because it takes a lot of time, money, and energy to grade, sort, and sell those cards. But for the casual listener that walks into um, just any random LGS that has dusty old cards everywhere, it's going to be hard for you unless you already have some sort of gig or people that can vouch for you, or if they just really need the money for you to be able to flip it. So David, what you should do is you should submit a plan to this owner or come in with something more than just word of mouth to show them that you're serious and that you mean business. If your budget is $2,000 or whatever to buy a couple 
display cases, walk in and just be like, hey, how much for everything on the shelves? And sometimes that'll work a lot better for shops um, or for you than it will for most people. Uh, feel free to criticize me, Ed. Um, I'm obviously not perfect at this. I think there's just a lot of different approaches for it. Um, we see, obviously, we see it all the time. There's no shortage of stores that go out of business, and you see it on social media. Uh, hey, store will be closing in two weeks from this date. Come by. We're looking for inventory liquidation. You always have a, have a lot of whales that come in and just try and swoop up the inventory in one shot. Um, right? It's you know, it's 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 very basic, right? Obviously, if you value your time, then it makes sense for you to go through and try and maximize on everything. Some of these owners, they're pinched on time, they're pinched on money, right? It's much more appealing to say, I can pay, I'll pay 50%, but I'll take everything. Whereas, you know, your normal person would say, oh, I can only give you a 25% discount or something if you're only looking to cherry pick out certain cards or whatever. Um, there's no good way about it. And again, I think Jeremy kind of hit it with a point that you want to have a plan. You want to know what your budget is, what your time is how much you want to tackle this. Um, like in Jeremy's case, like I'm sure, you know, the store that he bought or wherever, I'm sure he paid, He, I'm sure he paid the correct number. But now, you know, one of the first problems, how do you physically move 400,000 400, commons 30 minutes? It was a lot of shop employees and a lot of their cars. It was like six shop employees, which I had to pay, pay for gas. They had to drive out there. You know, it's not cheap. Right. So like literally that's the first hump. Okay. Like, great, you bought the store, you bought their entire inventory. What next, right? Like, are you going to rent a U-Haul? Is this store even, like, close to you? Are you expecting them to ship out 400,000 cards, 100,000 cards or whatever? Um, right, like, if you... Right, like, these are all just minor logistics you don't think about. Like, it just... It's easy to say that, you know, $60,000, if I pay $30,000, that's $30,000 in free money. And once you start adding in your time, your labor, all these fees that you just incidentally have to pay, whether it be like transportation, paying fees through third-party platforms themselves, your time, picking through 400,000 commons, right? Like how much are you really profiting on top? And that's, again, this is where ultimately your mileage may vary. You have to do what makes sense and what works for you. Anything to add, Jim? I feel we covered this pretty well. Nope, at the start of this question, I said, I don't know. I wouldn't do these kinds of things. I have better things to do with my time and money than buy a shop. But anyway, uh, thanks for the question, David. Uh, when you hear this cast, you can send me an email at cartelaristocrats at gmail.com. I will get you your $25 gift certificate to coolstuffinc.com. If you'd like to win next week, you need to leave a question just like David did on our podcast, which should go up on Cool Stuff's website uh, April 2nd, Tuesday, April 2nd. It should, yes. Um, moving on, humble brag time. We sold out my legacy tournament. Not humble brag time. We had to turn away people that drove five hours to play legacy. So legacy is alive and well. Take that, oh everyone. Oh my god! It. People <laughs> need to pre-register for a tournament before it they was. Go. So I talked about this to my players during the player meeting. It was such a shit show because we had sixty-five players registered. You know, a day out from the tournament, then we had a hundred people sign up on the same day. And so all the players who looked at registration numbers because it was publicly on my site, how many entries were left for sale. So like two days before, oh, there's like a hundred and something entries left. I'll be fine. And then drove from like Detroit, Texas. Some people flew in from California and New York and Boston. It was, yeah, it was not great. So if there's one thing that one little piece of knowledge I can impart to anyone that ever listens to this podcast don't wait till the last second to pre-register for a tournament. They can cap, they do cap, and they will cap when you want to go and you don't pre-reg. Just don't do, just don't, just get the peace of mind. Like, I don't understand. If you have 
a week out from registration. If you don't have enough money to register for the tournament, why are you going to this tournament? You don't have enough money to register for a week out. How do you not have like, even if it's a hundred dollars, why do you not have a hundred dollars a week before the tournament? Because they're magic players and they suck at budgeting. I know. That's what I'm trying to say. If you can't, if you can't afford this tournament a week out, then just don't go. Like you probably have better things to do with your money than spend it on a tournament entry fee of a tournament. You're statistically unlikely to win. So that's not really finance related, but it was a pain to uh, um, deal with. But we can transition this into something that Ed has dealt with before. And I feel like Jim has dealt with before. So one guy showed up. We've talked about this on the cast before. He handed me a five row. Inside the five row was everything from five cent cards to $300 cards. Everything was minimum double sleeved and occasionally triple sleeved. And I had a line of people waiting to sell to me at one point. How do you think I felt giving him numbers about 200 cards into that box? Uh, I would have a hundred percent told him take all the cards out of the sleeves first. So I asked him, I'm like, hey, can you help me unsleeve this? Like, we can do this together. And he just looked at me. So, like, what numbers do you think I offered him? Do you think I gave him good numbers? Or do you think I just was like, please walk away? I, I'm i surprised you did not turn him away. Yeah, it was not fun. Or Ed, just do you want like, to talk about... You specifically wanted. Ed, do you want to talk about the correct way if you're selling cards to someone in quantities? Uh... For the, for the most part, it's as a buyer, anyone who buys cards, it's generally a good policy to have cards unsleeved. Um, I would make them unsleeve it generally um, or unsleeve as you go. But, like if it's a small amount, if it's a deck box or whatever, I'll, I'll sit there and unsleeve, um, unsleeve it myself and just look at it. One, because the most important thing, excuse me, is you want to be able to check for fakes. Uh, usually the... The feel of the car itself, if it feels odd, it's you need if you take out a sleeve and it feels odd, then that's that's your first trigger. You know that, hey, this is worth a second look. I need to take a loop to it, I need to examine it a little bit closer, I need to, you know, weigh it, any one of these things. A lot of times people who end up inadvertently buying fakes is because someone says, Hey, hey, buy my modern deck, right? You're just like you're just you just thumb through it quickly, you just put cards down into buy piles. And then um, you just put it down to buy piles. You don't think about it. You pay them a number, and then you come back later and you realize that, hey, these little on the veils are fake. And this would have very easily been solved had you spent the extra minute or so de-sleeving everything. You have picked up the little and realize that, hey, this feels different. The, the, this card is clearly fake. I can look at the set some motor loop or something, and then um, you would avoid that entirely. Um, as for being, as for storing cards um, themselves, transporting them wherever you want to, make sure that they're. Um, you want to make sure that they're uh, not not sleeved, uh, unless it's more than a certain dollar amount. Um, it just it's just way easier to pack cards into a box if everything's de-sleeved. It's think cards compressed. You get more cards in the box this way. If I'm selling cards, I generally will stack up the same cards 10 or 12 to a sleeve, depending on which sleeves you have. It just makes it way easier, um, especially for counting. I generally only leave things in sleeves of 10. If I have less than 10 in a sleeve, I turn it upside down, so I know that this isn't a full sleeve. Um, but it, like, if you're bringing like a 5K of double-sleeved cards or whatever, I'm just realistically, I'm just going to tell you to go away and like, de-sleeve it or something. Or So... Ironically, true story. Guess who the next guy to sit down was after a five row that was double sleeved? Uh, a guy with two five rows that were double sleeved. It was Ogre. And guess what? Every single card he was selling me that was in quantity was in a penny sleeve. It had the number he wanted on it, which is called Ogring. And guess how fast I could go through his giant stack of cards? It was way easier as a buyer. So we've talked about ogring at Grand Prix before. Uh, we have multiple vendors at my legacy events. So it was easy for him to show up and, uh, you know, get some cash. 
because I was paying 90 enforceable for some reason. So, yeah. Make it easy for buyers and they'll be willing to work with you more. Or you can show up with a one row that's like random and throw it in Ned's face and just watch the life drain out of his eyes. So, yeah. It's basically, the rule of thumb here is the more work you put into bringing what you do when you bring the cards there, the more money they will give you because they don't have to do the work themselves. So the less work it is for a store or a person to buy your cards, the more money they will probably give you. Yeah, and I think it's also important to mention because some of the people that watch our live stream are talking about this. A lot of people will try and keep fake sleeved. And one of the easiest ways to see what's fake is to just feel it, one that's unsleeved. So, you know, people have bought fake cards before. But if you unsleeve everything as just someone who casually plays magic and maybe does MTG finance stuff, if you unsleeve every card you're buying, it's a lot easier to tell it's fake. I mean, you should always unsleeve all the cards you buy anyway, because you want to see the condition. Like right. you don't want to get a card that's like pristine on the front and like looks like it went through a, a mud run on the back. I would actually argue that's one of the bigger mistakes in MTG finance. Now that I think about it for a lot of people that are just starting off, like, they don't know every card, so they just like start assuming BIOS numbers on like EDH decks, and then they get home and de-sleeve the card, and it's like wrecked on the back or like marked. Because I remember doing that a lot when I was younger. I don't know if Ed did, but I feel like that's pretty common. Jeremy, aren't you like 16? Yeah. Yes. I am 16 years old, Jim. So all my players thought I was 35, so I'm going to go jump off the bridge now. But, uh... Yeah, that's that's double sixteen. Yeah, that is that is more. Even my Missouri math knows that much. Um, no, I was doing Missouri math for you. you were off by two <laughs> last time, so I was off by two for you. Yeah. Uh, is there anything you guys want to talk about this week? I think just to like close on that last bit. Um, in terms of ogring, uh, one of the best uses is to be able to offload commons uncommons that are very very hard to sell on TCG player because they don't have a lot of value. Um, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but cards in the 10 to 25 cent range. That's Are we kind talking, of... So like persistent petitioners, stuff like that? Sure, sure. Uh, persistent petitioners isn't the best one because everyone knows it has value and people know to pick it. Fairy Macab? Sure. Like, that's definitely a better one. Uh, it's yeah. a card that definitely sells... You don't want this on TCG because it's like a sub dollar, but stores generally want to have it in stock, make it available to their legacy modern players. Um, but people aren't going to have them in binders. If people do have them in binders, it's not really worth the time to be pulling them out and pay, say, hey, I'm going to pay five or 10 cents on this card. Um, so when people do bring up audio boxes with these types of things, I'm generally more inclined to possibly even overpay one because they've done the work, they've priced it out, they know that. Raymond Cobb, I want 10 cents on it, um, which may seem like a lot, but the fact that's there, especially if they have a sleeve full, if they have eight or 10 in a sleeve, for example, great, right? Like this is the, it's there, it's all in one place. It's someone did the work, they pulled it out for me. Um, I'm again, more inclined to overpay on these types of cards because of the convenience factor. You did the work, you should be paid for your work. And if it means overpaying a little, that's fine because you did the work. I didn't have to go through bulk to find, hey, to find, hey, my customer needs a set of Ferramacobs, I have to dig them out or online or whatever, sell them at a nominal rate. Um, and also, if I, I... I can't speak for other vendors, but um, I'll be forthcoming with people. If they want $5 on a card and I can pay $6, I'll tell them, hey, I can pay $6 on this. Um, a lot of people... Except pay, to me. But other than that, yes. Except to Jeremy. I'll try and yes. dagger Jeremy whatever way I can. <laughs> Um, I can't say this is the same for every vendor. I know I don't care if I have an ogre box, I'm taking it a different vendor. I'm happy with the number that I priced it at. I, um, usually sometimes I'll even take less depending on how much they take from me. Um, again, I don't care. Vendors don't have to pay me more. Um, but there are definitely vendors out there that will say, Hey, we can pay you more on this. Um, again, because you did the work, um, and that has value. Um, so Whereas someone, like I said, if they're expecting me to de-sleeve their double and triple sleeve cards, they're going to yeah, buy, buy this number that reflects that accordingly. And yeah, um, 
a veteran may not even be happy after that because Ogre walked in, saw this guy doing this, and then went and sold cards to another vendor in the room. And as a vendor, that means I'm losing business or potential cards that I could have made money on. So that is not going to make me very happy with whoever is sitting in front of me. So just uh, some final thoughts. And I don't even vend full time. It's just like, you know, the one day I vend, this guy does this. So, um, yeah. You guys ready to get into to the uh, pick of the week? Yes, sir. All right. Ed, what is your pick of the week? Uh, since we have a new set coming out, we're kind of being that point in the year where standard becomes a little odd, but you kind of want to stay ahead of the game. Uh, both my picks are fairly similar. Uh, they are Assassin's Trophy and Vraska Golgari Queen. Uh, Assassin's Trophy is a good, clean answer to Planeswalkers. Um, we have yet to see if we're going to have some Super Friends type deck where they're trying to overload you on Planeswalkers. Um, if that were to happen, uh, Planeswalker removal is fairly taxed at this point. We are basically looking at Bedevil and Sorcerer Spyglass as a way that directly interacts with Planeswalkers. Um, I think those are both a little bit weaker. I think that Black Green is already kind of an established deck. And Assassin's Trophy is basically at its floor. I don't see it being much cheaper than it's ever going to be. Whereas if Black Green does become a deck or people start looking to maximize interaction with Planeswalkers, um, Assassin's Trophy is just kind of the go-to. It's just a very, very good generic catch-all. Um, Vraska Golgari Queen kind of in the same boat. I'm mainly looking at the Abrupt Decay mechanic on, on her. I don't necessarily think that this card will be as expensive as it was towards the beginning of Guilds of Ravnica Standard when Black Green was just the best deck. Everyone was playing super grindy mid-range decks and she was a way to get head. That was probably, I think she had capped out about $15 or $16 at that point. I don't see her going back up to that, but at $3, you can't really get much lower on her. So your opportunity cost is pretty low um, on both of these cards. A playset together probably costs you probably $50, $60. I don't really see the harm in picking up a set now because um, I don't think these have anywhere to go but stay where they are, at which point you maybe lose a little bit on fees, selling to a buy list or whatever. Or if it does go up, then you just save yourself a bunch of money by staying ahead of the curve. Jim? So, uh, I know I've been singing its praises, but I think that this is a pretty rare situation for people that play standard. Uh, I think that Liliana Dreadhorde General is probably going to be the best card in the set for uh, people that play standard. Uh, you can order them on TCG Player for $20, or you can order them for cool stuff right now for $14. Uh, I am. I already actually. Uh, while we were having this cast, I uh, I bought a Liliana because I want one per commander, and I don't really understand. Like, I can't see this being much less than fourteen dollars. Like, it might if, if it really, really, really misses, it might be like a six dollar card. But if it's really, really, really good, it could just be like Teferi, where it's like forty, fifty dollars because this is a. This is the summer set. No, this is the spring set. What? 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 There's there's one more standard set before the fall set, right? Core twenty. Yeah. So this is the spring set. Not a lot of this usually is opened, and if this is a major player in standard for a long period of time, it's going to be very expensive. Um, I think this is the same slot as Eldritch Moon, which is which has the uh, $50 plus dollar, uh, Liliana The Last Hope, which actually has been reprinted a couple of times. It's still quite expensive. Um, I don't know. This card seems pretty much unbeatable. It, it goes into many different decks. I assume that there's going to be an aggressive black deck because if people are trying to play Planeswalkers, that's usually the best color to kill them. Um, I, I bought, I'm, I'm just saying personally, I bought a copy at $14. I think if you play Commander and you really like this, or if you play standard and you're like on the fence about playing like some 
black mid-rangey deck, like I think this is the kind of card that you're going to want. It's definitely a better investment than like the $12 or whatever it costs for a Liliana Untouched by Death now. Uh, small nitpick, Eldritch Moon was technically the Somerset. It came out. It was. It was oh, yeah, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, they didn't have a core set that year. That's why it was pushed one. Yeah, and just to elaborate on that slightly before Jeremy makes a pick. Um, if people remember from Dominaria last year, there was a huge, huge, huge shortage of Dominaria bat less once of uh, Dominaria coming out. There was just a lot of people were wanting boxes. A lot of people were wanting the top cards in the set, especially when they showed that both Karn, Teferi. I want to say there were a few other cards in Dominaria that had huge impacts on the first weekend, and a lot of stores couldn't keep um, a lot of stores couldn't keep stock on sealed boxes, um, and that kind of that more or less caused the prices on on those mythics to just explode. Um, if War of the Spark is as good as um, as they say, if we are gonna have um, if we if we are gonna have a lot of entry into uh, Magic, especially off the um, coming off of the Mythic Invitational, this brings in new players to the store. People will see that trailer. People are excited to get into Magic. Um, and uh, there's just like there's just a huge initial demand. It might be really really hard to get these singles. And like Jim said, if this does turn out to be the best card in the set, which I'm a little skeptical about, I do see how this card is very powerful. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable that if it does have a huge run at the beginning, we could easily see this being a forty dollar mythic, very similar to what happened with Dominaria last spring. Yeah, I think I think that the important thing to note here is not not that I'm saying this is for sure a forty dollar mythic, but like this has the potential of being a forty dollar mythic or like a seven or eight dollar mythic. And at fourteen, at the pre like at a pre order price of fourteen dollars doesn't seem unreasonable. I'm back in uh, penny stocks this week. There's two that I now own a hundred copies of each. Thanks to Arbitrage. Full disclosure, don't buy these. But either way, I'll give my reasoning. My first is Joyra, Weatherlight Captain from Dominaria. This is already a card that locally has been selling very well for EDH. Because of the historic clause on it, and the fact that it is a mythic, um, I honestly don't see if it can go much lower during its time in Standard. Worst case, you cast some other derpy planeswalkers and draw some cards. In a similar vein, once again, penny stock, like probably going to lose money, but if it pans out, then I can afford to fly Ed in for my tournament. Um, Phyrexian Scriptures. If there is going to be an artifact deck with the new Tezzeret that was spoiled as a buy a box promo, something that destroys all non artifacts uh, creatures um, may be good. I don't know what exiling the opponent's graveyard would do in a new standard because we haven't really seen any real graveyard mechanics, but this may be something that they can use to slow down the board because I don't think they're going to be playing Kaya's Wrath. I think this is something that they would be playing instead. So once again, penny stocks, if they pan out, they pan out and they most likely will not. But those are my picks of the week. Anything else, guys? I'm sure what Jeremy really wants you to say is that he wants you to bid on the 9.5 beta lotus and 9.5 unlimited lotus. That's going just on. a meme at this point. <laughs> That's going up on the, on the PWCC auction. Yeah. It's not a meme. It's it's the truth. You do want people to do that. What am I trying to sell? Trying to tell people that I sold a $400,000 alpha lotus? That's not what I do. No, man. You wanted to get Mangucci with his his dollar dollar bills now. He's yeah. Got sweet yeah. Mythic invitational money. <laughs> well, where can people find you guys? Uh, I am uh, Edwin. You can find me on Twitter at Edwin13. I will be in Denver this weekend for uh, Pokemon Regionals. 
My name is Jim Casal. You can find me on Twitter at PHROST underscore. You can find my articles every other week on CoolStuffInc.com. You can find me on this lovely podcast. My name is Jeremy. You can find me on Twitter at MissouriMTG. Um, I'll hopefully have internet connection in Korea in a couple weeks. But, um, yep, you can find this cast on Twitter at cartel underscore finance on YouTube, SoundCloud, our sponsors, coolstuffinc.com and everywhere else. We always appreciate you guys listening every week and one day Ed will get his audio fixed, but until then, thanks for listening. And of course, bye-bye.